Welcome to Shelter in Place, a podcast about finding daily sanity in a world that feels increasingly insane. Coming to you from Oakland, California, I'm Laura Joyce Davis. Before I begin today's episode, I wanted to ask for your help with something. If you listen on iTunes, you've probably seen their list of podcasts designated as COVID-19 essential listening. I've reached out to Apple to ask them to include Shelter in Place on that list, but I need your help. If you could take a moment to go to iTunes, rate Shelter in Place, and write a quick review of what you like about the show, I would be so grateful. Earlier this week, my son was playing Legos, explaining to my husband Nate in great detail about the castle he'd constructed. Nate listened patiently to Gabe's explanations about why this wall was here and not there and why there needed to be a moat around the castle. And then Gabe said something very strange. He said, And this gate here, that's the Mexican gate. What do you mean, the Mexican gate? Nate said. You know, the gate the Mexican people go through. Because they live in this neighborhood right over here. He pointed to the space just outside this particular entrance to the castle. Nate was stunned, as I was later when he recounted the moment to me. Our kids are fluent in Spanish, nearly as comfortable speaking that language as they are English. We try to speak a lot of Spanish at home, and it's not unusual for Gabe to correct our grammar or roll his eyes because we don't know a certain word that's obvious to him. Many of our dearest friends, and his, are Latino. The neighborhood where we live in Oakland is a stone's throw from Fruitvale, the part of Oakland where you can find a taco truck on almost every corner. We've been to most of them and long ago picked our favorite, Sinaloa, which has the best carnitas burritos I've ever encountered. I've been dreaming about them a lot lately. And yet somehow the idea of segregation has still taken root in our little boy. The Mexican gate. It's bothered me all week. Yesterday on episode 46, I made a promise to myself and to you that I wasn't going to be complacent and silent anymore about the ways that racism still shapes our country and our world today. I'm so grateful to Allison, Mariela, Desir, Bayano Kamani, and Nicholas Smith for creating words and art that have stirred me and pushed me to recognize the ways I've unwittingly been complicit in allowing oppression to continue. Someone else who's been stirred this past week is Ed Yuzinski, the senior content strategist for Family Life. Ed has a PhD in American Culture Studies as well as two degrees from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. I met Ed years ago when I was a college student attending Athletes in Action, which he and his wife Amy have been involved in for years. Ed and Amy live in Ohio now, and they have four kids. It's probably been 20 years since I met him, but he popped back into my life this week when someone forwarded me a story he'd written for Family Life titled, Should We Talk to Our Kids About Ahmad Arbery? Ed begins his story with these words. When the Ahmad Arbery story broke, some of my friends were devastated. Days later, others still had no idea what happened. The disparity between those reactions is worth reflecting on. A 25-year-old man was gunned down in the street, chased by two men with guns in their truck. He was jogging in their neighborhood. With no evidence, they said he looked like a breaking and entering suspect. The dead man, Ahmad, is black. The two men who killed him, Gregory and Travis McMichael, are white. 
two and a half months later, after a video of the incident surfaced, they were arrested for murder. Ed goes on to make the case that we need to be talking to our children about Ahmad's death, that when we shield them from these horrific injustices, we become part of the problem. He writes, I'm concerned that each time one of these situations arises and I don't address it with my kids, I'm teaching them it doesn't matter or that I don't care or that silence in the face of injustice is acceptable. I should probably stop here and say that Ed is coming from a distinctly evangelical Christian perspective. That's the world he moves in, the people he's speaking to in his publication. He's concerned less about politics and more about how we're teaching our children to view God. He says, In an increasingly polarized world, Christians should be leading the way in thought and action on topics like this, especially in our own families. We might not want to talk about injustice because we immediately think politics, but that's a mistake. This is a human issue that grieves the heart of God, and we need to help our kids internalize it. Ed says that we need to teach our kids that what these men did to Ahmad is an act of evil. It's a situation that God hates, and we should hate it too. He advises his readers to not think of justice and injustice as political ideas. They were significant biblical terms long before they became popular in politics. He quotes Zechariah 7.9, which says to administer true justice and to show mercy and compassion to one another. And Isaiah 1.17, which says, learn to do right, seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Ed says that we don't have to show our kids the video of Ahmad's death, but if they don't see us grieving over it and teaching them to grieve over it too— We're modeling a world where injustice is tolerated. We're missing an opportunity to teach our kids empathy. And we're giving them a wrong view of the kingdom of God. Jesus himself was not a white man, but a Middle Eastern Jew. The Bible's picture of heaven is one that includes every tribe and language and people and nation. Ed says that when we talk to our kids about the injustices of the world— we're also teaching them to move away from self-centeredness, to care about more than themselves. He says, praying only for personal problems while never praying about injustice for others deprives our kids and actually may inadvertently teach them a wrong view of God. As citizens of another kingdom, we need to cry out to God and lament for the brokenness in this world, especially for those who are actually suffering because of injustice right now. If Allison Mariella Desir's piece that I quoted in episode 46 was a rallying cry to the white running community, Ed's piece is a rallying cry for white evangelicals. He urges his readers to speak up about injustice, to feel compassion for those who are experiencing evil firsthand, to reach out to those who feel this most deeply and let them know that you care, that you are outraged. He says, That's not political. It's just Christian, and our kids need someone to teach them how to think like one, especially in areas we'd rather avoid. Ed may have been writing this for Christians, but when I read his words, their reach feels wide. So many of us are parents, navigating the daily challenges of how much of the world we let them take in, especially right now when they're spending so much time on screens. 
Nate and I are usually pretty careful about what we let our kids watch, what they hear us talk about. In what was probably a parenting misstep a few months ago, I let the kids watch West Side Story, which I loved as a child. It was the first movie to cause nightmares for our six-year-old, and for weeks, our three-year-old would say, out of nowhere, Tony die? So maybe I let them see that one too soon. But Ed's words this week have convicted me about how quick I am to shield my kids from the hard things in life. I think sometimes I assume that because they go to a school where they speak Spanish all day, where they learn about Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X, because they go to a church where they put together care packages for homeless people in Sunday school, that they know on a visceral level that there is injustice in our world. But this week I'm realizing that we need to be more intentional about communicating to them the way we're grieved about these injustices. We still haven't talked to them about Ahmad. We're going to today. My kids are little enough that it's going to trouble them a lot. Our youngest probably won't be part of that conversation. Someday, not too far down the road, she'll be old enough to know that Tony isn't the only one who died. But the older two will get it. They're both sensitive, and we're going to have to be careful about what time of day we tell them to make sure that we provide time and conversation to process this thing that is so terribly wrong. Maybe we'll talk about the Mexican gate while we're at it. I don't know. But I'm grateful to Ed and others like him who are pushing us to have these hard conversations right now. This past Sunday, during our church's online service, my friend Jonathan St. Clair shared something he'd written, words of poetry and prayer. Jonathan is one of the pastors at our church. He's also a distance runner and a dad with three kids. He knew that many families with children will be watching. He had to stop several times because he was weeping. Jonathan understands deeply what Ed is saying what Allison and Bayano and Nicholas are saying too. We can't tolerate this kind of injustice in our world, in our governments, in ourselves, in our homes. We need to weep with those who are weeping and teach our children to weep too. I'm going to close today's episode with the prayer that Jonathan shared. Lord, we are deeply saddened by the news of Ahmad Arbery, who was fearfully and wonderfully made, knit together in his mother's womb. Lord, you tell us to weep with those who weep, and we know that the heartache and mourning being felt in the body of Christ and in our body politic is not only about the killing of this young black man for the whole world to see, but about the history of racial violence and unspeakable tragedies and injustices it represents in our country. We say with the psalmist, How long must I wrestle with these cares in my mind, and day after day have sorrow in my heart? We are tired of living among those who hate peace. Lord, we grieve for Ahmad's mother, Wanda, his father, Marcus, his brother, sister, family, friends, and community. We pray for our African-American brothers and sisters and churches today, asking that you would heal the brokenhearted and bind up their wounds. Lord, we lament that too many unarmed African-American men have been judged not by the content of their character, but by the color of their skin, their lives needlessly cut short by racial prejudice and senseless violence. 
The frequency of these deaths is utterly tragic. Lord, we lament what brutally and insidiously lives in America, freshly stoked in recent years, life-destroying white hatred of blacks. This heart disease that values black lives less than other lives is outrageous and oppressive. Heavenly Father, how long will we have to see the bodies of young black men, too many to name, men with families and futures, men who loved and were loved, men full of promise and possibility, lying dead in the street, their blood crying out from the ground? We pray for our legal system to bring to light all of the facts of this case with clarity so that justice will roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. And we pray for the suspects, that you would bring them to sorrowful repentance and forgiveness. Lord Jesus, we pray to you who reached across the ethnic boundaries between Jew, Samaritan, and Roman, who offered fresh insight to the blind and new freedom to captives. Give us eyes to see the reality of racism and bigotry and help us break down the barriers in our community, beginning with ourselves. We know that your blood cries out louder than the blood of Abel and that sin, death, and injustice are not the final words in your redemptive story. Indeed, we set our hope on your return to bring perfect justice to earth and put the world to rights. Holy Spirit, until that day, direct and empower us as we struggle for the salvation of this tortured world with the sacrificial, self-giving, cruciform love of Jesus. We bring all of this lament and pain to you knowing that you bring life out of death and that you will in time heal our land. We long for that day when our swords and guns will be beaten into plowshares. Have mercy, Lord. If you've enjoyed today's episode of Shelter in Place, the best way you can support it is to subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes so others can find it too. Shelter in Place is sponsored by Brick and Mortar and Delta Wines. I am so grateful to be sponsored by a small local business that isn't just committed to making great wines, but to making this world a better place. Get 10% off your order when you use the promo code SHELTER at brickandmortarwines.com or winesforchange.com. When you buy wine, you support this show and also other businesses that are working toward more sustainable living. The Shelter in Place music was composed by Chase Horseman at Reactor Productions, and the Shelter in Place artwork was created by Sarah Edgel. Until tomorrow, this is Shelter in Place. I'm Laura Joyce Davis.